When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Welcome back to Hurt Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for giving us the most important thing. You have your time. We never want to waste it. We always try to do what we say we're going to do, turn down the noise of the news cycle. We need to do this with this January 6th committee story. The committee has voted 9-0 to subpoena former President Trump himself and materials related to January 6th. There's a lot of ways we could cover this, but we're going to cover it exactly the way we've covered this committee since the beginning. We're going to cover this the way we've covered this committee since the beginning. We go to turning down the noise. We don't listen to words. We watch actions. We judge by actions. If you want me to take you seriously, if you want me to believe you're trying to attain a certain goal, your actions will tell me you're taking it seriously, and your actions will tell me you're trying to attain that goal. My beef with this January 6th select committee has been their actions have never matched their rhetoric as to what they say they want to accomplish. They have subpoenaed former President Donald Trump now at the end during what is the end of probably their last public hearing and right before the election season, which is probably going to give control of Congress to the Republicans. And this committee will be disbanded in short order. In other words, the thing that they should have done first, they held to the last because it was the biggest, most dramatic thing they could do. If you're seriously going to investigate Donald Trump and you knew what was involved with Donald Trump, and yes, they've uncovered some particulars here, and yes, they've uncovered some important information, and yes, they've put that in the public consciousness, but the entire point of this was Donald J. Trump, former president of the United States, and his conduct before, during, and after January the 6th. You should have subpoenaed him first. The reason they didn't do that, you can guess at, but we have a couple of reasons. The reason you needed to do it first was because it was going to get drawn out in court. We've already seen this with the subpoenas with other high-profile people like Steve Bannon and others. This committee does not have the power to enforce those subpoenas. They have to go to court. The court then enforces them. It's a long, drawn-out legal process because they have to be held in contempt of court. Then the court can force them to apply. And then once they actually comply, by the way, they can just sit there and take the fifth and not say a blessed thing. So it's a little bit off for show. But they know that process takes a very long time. There is zero chance that Donald Trump answers the subpoena. He will run out the clock. He will go to court. He will stall it. The subpoena will go moot because this committee is going to get disbanded as soon as the Republicans take Congress. And that will be that. Now he's got plenty of other legal things going on. He's also got plenty of culpability for January the 6th. He does. Sorry if that offends you. It's just the truth. Anybody that watched the events of January 6th had a pretty good handle right then and there what was going on. It's plain. It's on TV. It's on video. And unless you allow your priors and your loyalties to certain people and certain parties and certain ideologies blind you, it's very apparent what January 6th was. 
Now, there's layers to it. No, not everybody there was trying to have an insurrection against the United States. That was a small group of people inside of the larger group. Yes, there was a large group that basically rioted and caused mayhem. Then there was a larger group that kind of went along for the ride, walked around, didn't do anything really terribly wrong, and left. We know all this because there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of court cases now that have been adjudicated. You don't have to guess. You don't have to listen to a talking head. You don't have to take anybody's word for it. It's all public record. Go read the court cases. It's readily available. You did that, right? You actually looked through the court cases, what they were charged with, what they pled guilty with. Or are you just listening to talking heads? Are you just listening to other people's opinions? Are you just listening to the things you want to hear? No, Donald Trump should have been subpoenaed first. And I know they're going to make it some kind of an argument about, well, we had to build the case. No, the case has always been and always will be Donald J. Trump and what he did. And the chances of you getting any actual actionable information out of him was basically none. Remember, this committee can do nothing criminal. They can refer it to the DOJ and the DOJ can do it, but the DOJ is running their own separate investigation anyway. Now, maybe they use some of this information, but we'll see. And of course, the former president has all kinds of other things going on. Yes, he's culpable for January 6th. How culpable? We'll probably never know. Instead of doing due diligence and having a hearing that matters here, they decided to do primetime ratings. They decided to do, look at me. They decided to do information as power instead of information as getting to the goal of doing something productive with it. And they held the one thing they should have done first, the most important thing they were going to try to do, to the last so that they would have a dramatic moment to cover up what a gigantic waste of time most of this was. Now, again, there's going to be some information in here that'll probably prove useful. But imagine what difference it could have been made if they would have taken this as seriously as they said they would, if they would have kept their eye on the ball, if they hadn't have done primetime hearings and all this other mess and just done a straight investigation. You can judge it however you want to. I judge by actions, not words. And the January 6th Select Committee doesn't seem like they've accomplished very much at all. We have some caller inside of the lines that we already knew. But other than that, what did we really learn here? Biggest thing we learned? How everybody reacted to this information. How serious Congress takes itself. How serious people take the events of January the 6th. And how political the entire sad, sordid affair is. It's amazing how different people act now than they acted on the night of January the 6th. Think about that when you look through all this stuff and all this material. And the hundreds and hundreds of prosecutions since then. One more time for the folks in the back. And for those in overflow, you don't have to guess what happened on January 6th. We have hundreds and hundreds of court cases that are public record. We have thousands of hours of video and audio. All the information is basically out there now. But very few people have changed their minds since then. Why? Because they don't want to. January 6th committee wasn't going to change anybody's mind. They were going to be loud. But our job is to turn down the noise. And when we turn down the noise, we have to call this what it is. As bad as Donald Trump should be held accountable for January 6th, we have to be honest here. This was a stunt by the January 6th committee at the end when they don't have a whole lot else to show for what they did to try to put a bullet point statement and cover up for what they failed to do. More hotel right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. 
There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Back to her, tell us go out to LA. This story is ugly. Uh, it's not getting a whole lot better because some folks are still trying to hold on to power when clearly they should not. There was a recording from last year of three members of the LA City Council. Uh, the recording had a lot of racist language, uh, prejudices, other words that should not be said. This recording has gotten out now. There's a big debate going on who leaked it and why. We'll set that aside for a minute. But of the three uh, city council members involved here, one of them has now resigned. There's immense pressure on the other two to also resign. Uh, you can read through this story. We're going to link to it. Uh, the words, I'm going to read you the opinion piece uh, from LZ Granderson, uh, of course, who's written opinion for the Los Angeles Times for quite a while, a lot, along with writing nationally. Just going to let him speak on it. Read it again. Read it for yourself. We're going to link to it. Uh, make up your own mind. But he, bra- he raises some very important things that will challenge us. I don't agree with necessarily all of his points here, but I think it's a good perspective to dig into the story, and then you can read it for yourself. This is L.G. Granderson, written on October the 11th. So, reading from the piece, this is the room where it happens. Not nearly as attractive as Aaron Burr described it in Hamilton. In fact, judging from the leaked audio from 2021 meetings among Los Angeles City Council members Jill C- Gil Cedillo, Kevin D. Leon and Nuri Martinez, the room where it happens is probably the ugliest place in politics, but it can also be revealing. Here's where things get really uncomfortable. The meeting was about power. The offensive language displays these politicians' thoughts about who they want to take power from. It was Martinez who called Assange's, and I'm probably mispronouncing this, I apologize, quote, ugly, referred to her out gay colleague, Mike Bonin, as the B word and described Bonin's black son as, quote, a monkey. And yet the facts that those comments went unchallenged says a lot about everyone else in the room. It's hard to imagine her saying these things unless Cedillo and De Leon provided the environment in which such sentiments seemed okay. Martinez resigned as president of the council on Monday and took a leave of absence. She since resigned outright, by the way, back to the piece. All three council members are under pressure to resign from office. While the offensiveness of the conversation commands the headlines, the reason the group met in the first place warrants more attention. They had gathered the Los Angeles County Federation of Labor with Ron Herrera, who was president of the Federation until he resigned this week. Most of the conversation was about the maps proposed by the city's redistricting commission and need to protect heavily Latino districts from losing economic assets in a once a decade process. Let's pause here for just a second. This is why we talk about city councils being really important. Now, obviously, L.A. is one of our biggest cities, so it's a little different beast. These things like zoning, these things like redistricting, we talk about gerrymandering. Remember, one man's gerrymandering is another man's redistricting. These things matter a great deal. Better pay attention to your city councils or if you live rurally, your county commissions or whatever body you have where you live. It's all about power and money, even on a local, smaller scale, not just federal. Important lesson to learn here. Back to L.Z. Granderson's piece. 
What kind of districts are you trying to create? Martinez said in frustration, because you're taking away our assets. You're just going to create poor Latino districts with nothing. This meeting was about politicians and communities fighting for political power. Democratic leaders, both local and nationally, know this is not a new topic. Martinez, Cedillo, and De Leon are a lot of things, including all Democrats. Anger over inequitable power structures within the party is not unique to them. Feels like a much larger conversation needs to happen beyond calls for the council members' resignation and beyond Governor Gasm Newsom's remarks that, quote, words matter and racist language can do real harm. This week, the Washington Post reminded national Democrats of the erosion of Latino support in Florida, warning it could happen in other states like Texas. Another pause here. We've covered this, the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, those numbers are moving quickly, something the Democratic Party should probably start paying some attention to. Back to the piece. Sure, Democrats can still win the White House in 2024 without those two states, but NBC reported Democrats in Nevada are concerned that Latinos may stay home on November 8th, unmotivated to show up despite the importance of the election. Last month, the Arizona Republic reported a survey in which 42% of Latinos in Arizona said neither party had contacted them at all about the midterm election. It makes no sense. Nearly a third of the state's population is Latino. Another pause here. I lived in Vegas for a couple of years. If you're not running bilingual ads and reaching out to the Latino community as a politician in Nevada and especially Las Vegas, you're crazy. You need to do these things. This is just common sense for either political party. Why wouldn't you reach out to such a massive base? Boggles the mind. Back to the piece. Maybe by itself, the leaked audio in Los Angeles would be a one-off scandal. But in its national context, conversation in the largest city and the biggest blue state signifies something more. We saw that in 2020 when President Trump won greater support from Latino voters than he did in 2016. Regardless of his remarks, his policies or Democratic characterizations of him, one in three Latino voters supported Trump nationwide. That's not a take. That's just what happened. Something else tangible connected with people in a way culture war and li liberal immigration policies don't. I would dare say other things there were the economy, COVID, and public safety. A growing number of Latino Americans believe Trump was better suited to address those things. I wonder if Democrats understand all the reasons why. Even if all three council members resigned, and they should, the issues that inspired their meeting won't go away. They were pushing for more political power for Latinos, and that's understandable. As reported by the Times, quote, Latino residents make up roughly half of L.A.'s population, but represent less than a third of the council's 15 districts. The disparity in representation is even wider in Washington. The nation is 19% Latino, but only 7% of representatives are members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. And there's only six senators that are Latino. What are some Latino leaders willing to do about it? In the case of Martinez and company, whatever they feel is necessary, including gerrymandering, just like every voting bloc and all other politicians. That's what leaked audio represents in a room where it happens. Motives are discussed, alliances are formed, and deals are made. Backroom deals are not always as vulgar and offensive as the meeting Martinez led, but they are always about getting needs met. That's the most important takeaway for the city and for the Democratic Party. Not just the words, but the issues behind them. That's L.Z. Granderson, longtime well-known opinion columnist writing about the L.A. City Council. We're going to link to the news stories on the City Council situation. We're going to link to this piece. He has a lot of the, the stuff he in here linked as well. Make sure you read it all. Make up your own mind in these very touchy issues. I will say this. We've been covering Latino voters pretty extensively. We've had multiple guests on. We'll continue to talk about it because something is happening in the Latino community. We've seen it with the census data. This group of folks is not only growing, 
they're also diversifying economically how they identify themselves and yes politically the old tropes don't always hold true we had our friend mark on talking about the rio grande valley like he said the latinos there they are the middle class they are the cops they are the school teachers they have a different point of view than some other folks have and if you have a stereotype that doesn't see latinos in all the different class stratas of the economy and in politics you're behind the curve you need to update your priors you need to get rid of your prejudices and you need to pay attention to this community as it exists the same with all other communities of color and of demographics and of economic stratas and races and everything else these things change make sure your opinions and your perspectives and your perceptions change with them and do it without what these city council members did with hateful rhetoric with racist language don't answer the problems of the world with hatred and small-mindedness that never helps advance the ball for anything more hotel right after this Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, he's back. It's just you didn't see the first time he was on here because we had a technology failure. So we're going to do it again, but that means I get to talk to him a second time. Smart guy, sharp guy, excited to see him. He's one of these bow tie people too, so that's always exciting to see how he shows up dressed. Ethan Brown, my friend, how are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you back. Um, we're going to have you back again, except we're going to mean to this time. Uh, <laughs> you were writing about the Inflation Reduction Act Look, we're used to these omnibus bills. We're used to they just call it whatever they want to, and then we jam in whatever they wanted to pass anyway, right? We've gotten used to this sort of thing. You took the angle, though, as they were talking about this thing was going to be great for the environment. Now, the environment was what kind of really held up Build Back Better, and then it was kind of a piece of the Build Back Mansion, which turned into the Inflation Reduction Act. So the environmental portion of this has always been contentious. What actually got in this bill, and is it actually going to do anything for the environment? So I think it depends on what your political philosophy is as to whether you might like the environmental provisions or not, because the approach the bill took is 
just investing a lot of government money into a lot of climate priorities. So you can do the math, do the economics, and see that these investments would have X effect on different clean energy industries, clean transportation, agriculture, et cetera, and see that there should be a drop in emissions. That said, you could question whether or not that's the right approach. There are obviously other approaches to try to get to the same result. So I tend to come at it from a perspective of, I just want to see this get done. I tend to care a little less about how it gets done. But the the thing that I wrote about in my piece about the Inflation Reduction Act, which was in Real Clear Energy about a month ago, is I was concerned that they kept saying that there would be a 40% reduction in carbon emissions. And that's sort of true, but there's a lot more nuance to that statement. And I felt like it was coming off a little misleading. So happy to talk about that more as well. Yeah. And start big picture with it for us, because what happens every time we talk climate, people want to throw a number with it. Now, this isn't unusual because they do the same thing with, you know, funding for roads or school funding or whatever. It feels like sometimes they just pick a number, then they get this data to say whatever number they want, because we all know that statistics can say whatever you want them to say. That 40% number, where does it come from? Does it actually mean anything? Because this one, especially when you start looking into it and how they got the number, this one looks like they pretty much kind of picked this one out of thin air a little bit. So it does come from something. They're saying that there would be a 40% reduction in carbon emissions by 2030 from 2005 levels. And people may not know this, but America's carbon emissions actually peaked in 2005. They've come down about 16% since then. And based on current trends, they were expected to come down another, uh, down to like 26, or I believe 24% by 2030, just based on current policies, current behavior of the free market. So is going from 24% to 40% a big deal? Sure. But it's not all because of the Inflation Reduction Act. We're going back in time to set our initial target or initial starting point, rather, and we are ignoring the fact that emissions have come down since then and would have continued to come down since then. So I would just caution against policymakers taking full credit if we drop emissions by 40%, because even though the Inflation Reduction Act would contribute, it wouldn't do it all by itself. Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us. You said they peaked out. Was that purposeful policy? Was it a little bit of inertia? Was it just technology and innovation kind of catching up as through the due course of events? Give me a little bit of a breakdown of that, because that number is probably going to surprise people because we, you know, we've gotten accustomed to climate alarmism as opposed to climate policy discussion, like a lot of things. Right. So that seems like a good piece of news somebody should be talking about, but you don't hear anybody talking about it. So break down that number why we got there, why it peaked out, and why in the world nobody's discussing it, especially people that want and care about that issue. It's a great piece of news. It's something that makes me very excited, and I wish more people knew it. I think that there is certainly a political piece. I don't know how big that piece is, um, because 2005 was a ways back, but certainly we have seen a lot of other climate bills get done over the course of time. Maybe they're not termed climate bills, but then again, neither was the Inflation Reduction Act. They put inflation as the headline. So there are bills that have been working, taking some small steps toward emissions cuts, but I think a lot of it 
came on the technology side and on the economic side. Um, the cost of photovoltaic solar has dropped by 85% in the last decade. The cost of onshore wind has dropped by 55% in the last decade. And the cost of batteries for electric vehicles has dropped by 85% in the last decade. Meanwhile, consumption of coal dropped by 58% in the United States from uh, 2005 to 2019. So we're seeing that a lot of these cleaner technologies are just becoming more economically viable on their own. That's a very exciting prospect for someone who cares about the climate or someone who just cares about cheap and reliable energy. So yeah, I think there's a combination of factors at play, but certainly the technological piece has been one of the more exciting ones in my view. Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us. Uh, that's the technology piece. We're talking about the political piece Let's talk about the emotional piece. You talked about it in your piece in Real Clear Energy. Again, we're going to link to it. Make sure you read the whole thing yourself. He's got a bunch of links in here, too. So read the links because he actually backs a lot of this up with data. And there's a lot of good perspective in here. Read it. Make up your own mind. You talk about the emotional part of this. This is a very emotional issue, probably too emotional for most people. People come at it emotionally before they get to the data, before they get to the science, before they get to the policy arguments of it. Talk about something like saying, well, we're going to do this 40% by 2030. Of course, for years and years, everything was 2020. We're past 2020 now. They pick a date, they pick a percentage, and then it's like, oh, we're going to do this. But does that actually help? Because you talk about things like if you start going towards alarmism, if you start going towards doom and gloom, there's actual scientific data, not from the climate side, from the psychology side, that people start turning this stuff off and don't want to pay attention to it and don't want to listen to it. If people feel a certain level of fear or guilt about an issue, that can prompt them to act. But once it goes over a certain amount, then it just turns them off completely. Uh, I did a dual degree in college with environmental analysis and policy in film and television. Film and TV was in the College of Communication, and that was something that we learned in our very first communication class. So there's a really fine line you have to walk when you're trying to communicate an issue. I also find that people tend to be a lot more excited to hop on a moving train than a train that's standing still in terms of projects to work on, companies to go be a part of, and I think policy as well. So if we're saying 40% by 2030, if we're saying this is the first major climate bill to get done, I think that's a lot more overwhelming than exciting to hear. And so I worry that by framing it like the Inflation Reduction Act is step one, it's just going to turn people off. It's going to make people feel like we're too late or what have you. Whereas if we're talking about we've been making progress for decades and this is the latest step, then I think people might be a lot more excited. I was also concerned because for people who might not be as big a fan of the Inflation Reduction Act, be it political reasons or otherwise, it's kind of it excludes them a little bit. There are a lot of different ways to approach climate. This is not the only way to do it. And if we're saying this is the first and only big climate bill, then it might take people out of the climate conversation. Whereas I'd much rather people come in and say that wasn't the approach I would like, this is the approach I would like, and start to have those conversations and maybe have a more bipartisan approach next time around.
Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us. This is fascinating because we learned this during COVID. It became readily apparent that scientists don't know how to talk to the general public. They speak two different languages. And it became really apparent that government bureaucratic scientists really, really don't know how to speak to the public. How much of the problems with communicating on things like the environment, like climate change, like just conservation, if you're more of the conservative and you prefer that nomenclature, how much of this is just a language and communication problem? Because when you do things like this, you do the alarmism, you're picking stats out that are you know, not inaccurate, but you're kind of floating them to get a certain number to look good on the PowerPoint slide. That's all communication problems. That builds distrust. That builds people not wanting to listen. That builds, like you said, with the alarmism, people wanting to turn it off. How much of this is a communication problem before you even get to the policy parts of it? There's a huge communication problem, and I would not put it all on scientists. I think there's been issues from politicians, from journalists, from even folks in the climate communication world that I'm in. And it's challenging because this is a very serious issue. There are high stakes here. We're looking at a lot of important uh, ecosystems on our planet. We're looking at extreme weather events. We saw September have some really bad hurricanes, some storm surges, a historic heat wave here in California. So there's a lot of high stakes here. And I think that can kind of ramp up some of the pressure to just feel alarmed. At the same time, we're not all going extinct on Thursday. We know that there are ways to address this issue and there are ways to address it that can also improve the economy, improve our health, improve justice, improve national security, kind of take an approach that helps a lot more issues than we care about than just say, throw everything out we need to get the climate done. We can kind of do everything. So I think there's a lot to be concerned about, but also a lot to be excited about. And when I'm communicating, I try to put an emphasis on those solution options just as much as I do on the problems. I hope that more people can do that because ultimately I think that's where we might get more engagement and more productive conversations. Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us. You give an example of how not to communicate this stuff. Uh, now, to be fair here, every politician has done this, but in this particular case, it was President Biden saying, this is a quote, every single Republican, every single one voted against tackling the climate crisis. And you said this is, of course, false because there's only two options, no climate action or the Inflation Reduction Act. We just saw it this week with uh, the continuing resolution for national funding. And if you voted against that, then you voted against disaster relief for the hurricane we just had. We've done this with the military for decades. If you don't vote for this massive bloated DOD bill, you hate the troops. If you don't vote for school funding, you hate the kids, on and on and on. We see this tactic all the time, but we already mentioned it. When you're talking about something that a lot of people are skeptical of, whatever you think, there's just skepticism about the climate and climate change. And there's a lot of just things folks don't understand and a lot the science don't understand either. When you start putting black and white stuff like that, that is not helpful. It's not. And to your point, it is a complicated topic to wrap our heads around. It's something that is challenging for scientists to communicate to the public. And very often, scientists don't know what the public doesn't know. Uh, climate change is absolutely, it's a, climate science is a new field of science, but that doesn't mean that we're not certain about a certain number of things. We can see exactly how the greenhouse effect works down to the carbon dioxide atoms where an infrared radiation hits it, the oxygen atom in the middle wobbles and the carbon atoms that 
creates some energy and then those atoms bump into each other and contain energy and then we see a warming effect on the planet and we can see how that plays out in various natural disasters. There's stuff that is very certain, but that's challenging to communicate clearly. That's challenging for everyone to wrap their heads around. And then once we go to make policy about it, it's another challenge because the science and the policy starts to get intertangled. Then you have facts and opinions getting intertangled and suddenly the whole thing just raises skepticism. And there are parts of this that are facts and parts of this that are opinions. In my work, I always try to separate the two, but certainly that is a challenge for any communicator. Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us uh, from the Sweaty Penguin, which we'll talk more about in a minute ago. I love that name so much. Let's be honest here. I, look, I've, I've modulated on this a little bit. I, I don't think you know climate change is a scam, as some of the more hardcore people do. But I think there's scammers that take advantage of climate change. Climate change is a big industry. You're in it. You know, you make a living talking about this stuff. It is a business and an industry, even though there's a science part to it. Is there a responsibility for the folks in the climate uh, change area? Let me rephrase that. Is there a responsibility for the climate change sector and the activists and the people to maybe do a little bit more policing of their own? Because, frankly, some of that skepticism, some of that uh, questioning, some of the climate stuff, they've brought that on themselves. Absolutely. And I'll give you a little story. It was maybe a month or two ago. There was a article that came out in Scotland saying that 90% of plankton in the Antarctic Ocean had disappeared. And a whole bunch of climate activists, communicators on TikTok and other social media ran with this story, did posts about it. It kind of went viral. And this was not anywhere close to the case. If 90% of Atlantic plankton were gone, we would have noticed by now we might be gone ourselves. That is the foundation of our marine ecosystems. And that just didn't happen. Uh, these communicators were also saying that it was due to climate change. But I went back and found the original report that said this was not peer-reviewed, and it was from a group that sells water filtration systems, and they were saying it was not due to climate change, but it was due to pollution that I presume their water filtration systems could help fix. So I've seen things like this happen before, where I come in really hard, probably more than on anything else, to address climate communicators and say, we need to do a better job, because the facts of climate change are concerning enough, in my view. There is absolutely no reason to exaggerate things, to make up statistics, to take things out of context. The facts are very much a concern, and I think that that's more than enough to get people on board, anything beyond that, and you just lose trust from people. Ethan Brown joining us. Okay, but there's people that'll still contest that. People can have honest opinions on this thing. 
isn't a good way to do this. And I think this is something that we're having trouble with in media and politics and everything. We want to nationalize everything. We can't really do anything about the Inflation Reduction Act other than talk about it. We can't really do anything about, you know, a big commerce in Switzerland where everybody has to take their private jets to it and have a big meeting about the environment, right? Should we be spending more time and effort? And by we, I mean everybody involved, because if you talk to a conservative and you talk conservation where they live, they're going to be open to that. And the environmental and climate change folks, should they be talking a little more about local things, local level, municipal level, state level, things people can actually do, like going out and cleaning up their communities, like going out and working, you know, some forestry volunteer stuff, you know, just some basic stuff of taking care of the environment as it's traditionally labeled, you know, the nature, outdoors, things like this. I, I think sometimes we get into the, the big picture stuff. We lose that there's a lot of that. And that would probably be an easier way to get into these things. And then you can discuss the bigger picture things. Is there an effort to kind of do that? Is that something that you see as well as lacking here? I've definitely seen the environmental movement start to take steps in that direction. And I think I agree with you. That's a very good thing. It's a lot easier to care about something in your community than to think about globally something going on on the other side of the world and how our actions here can impact that. So yeah, the environmental movement, I believe, is starting to see that and starting to make some steps toward that. What I would hope that they do in doing that, which this I'm not sure is happening, there seems to be this idea of fighting for a cause and beating the opposition. And that's just silly to me. Everyone should care that they have clean air, clean water, and a healthy environment. I don't think anyone does not want that. And so that means you can bring anyone in on any of these issues, specifically local issues where people will see it in their own backyards. So if there's some dispute going on where a environmental group is thinking, all right, we just need to get 51% of the population on board, I would really caution against that. I think it's much more productive to get everyone on board, or at least as many people as possible, because then as you move to other issues and other issues, everyone's engaged, people are on the same page, and I think a lot more gets done. And then that can even be scaled up nationally when everyone cares and everyone's on board. Yeah. I remember something my dad told me years ago. He's like, you know, winning by one vote isn't winning. That's making half the people mad. Um, so there's some good wisdom there. Okay. Ethan Brown joining us. Let's talk about Sweaty Penguin for a minute. I, I love this. I love what you're doing, but I'll let you set it up. Tell people what it is. It's boy, you got the branding down, so I can, you know, that's done. But tell people about that's the sizzle. Tell people about the steak part of it, what you do with Sweaty Penguin. The Sweaty Penguin is my podcast. It is a comedy climate podcast presented by PBS's National Climate Initiative, Peril and Promise. And our goal is to make climate change and environmental issues less overwhelming, less politicized, and more fun. So we do two episodes a week. One of our episodes is called The Deep Dive, because we need a penguin pun. And those, we go into a specific environmental issue. We'll discuss what the problem is, how it affects the environment, economy, health, justice, etc. And then we'll talk about solutions. And rather than giving a specific solution and advocating for it. We'll discuss a variety of them and discuss the pros and cons and kind of let you make up your mind. That first segment is also a comedy monologue inspired by a lot of the late night talk shows. And then in the second segment, we'll interview an expert and we've had professors on from 15 countries and six continents to talk about their research and kind of give you a glimpse into what they're doing. 
The other episodes, which come out on Wednesdays, are called Tip of the Iceberg. Those are a shorter, newsier segment. So I'll do another late-night-style monologue talking about whatever the big climate news story of the week was, giving some context, kind of breaking down any miscommunications or factual inaccuracies or that kind of thing. And then in the second segment, I'll take a question from an audience member. And if you have any climate questions, please send them in to us. We love answering those. So that's The Sweaty Penguin. And we're two and a half years in. Uh, we had our 100th deep dive about a month ago, uh, which was really exciting. So definitely on the up and up here. Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us. I like that you do. People forget things like, you know, like Rush Limbaugh had the biggest conservative talk show of all time. He did tons of humor. Like it was ingrained into what he did. Late night uh, has gotten more political, but they intro it with humor. Saturday Night Live's always been. How important is it when you have a really heavy topic like the environment? You've got to have some levity in there just to give people, you know, some breathing room for one thing, because otherwise you just wear people out and their eyes start to glaze over. But also to give people kind of an entry point and some levity into a heavy topic. It just kind of humanizes everything, doesn't it? Absolutely. I ran both my high school and college satire publications, and that gave me a lot of insight into how comedy can be used to get people engaged in an issue, introduce people to an issue, bring in a larger audience on an issue. So I always had it in my head to kind of combine climate change and comedy, climate being something really overwhelming and depressing and confusing, and comedy to make it a little more fun. I think people sometimes are confused how the two intersect, but I would encourage you to check out our podcast because that's, I love to write comedy about some of these difficult topics. And I think that it makes it a lot more fun and a lot more interesting to learn about. Hey, if the uh, onion can file a brief in a Supreme court case that gets rave reviews from everybody, why can't the sweaty penguin go live from the uh, universal function in Switzerland or wherever those sort of things are? Never know, man, dream big. You might see what happens, right? That would be cool. Yeah. Ethan Brown, uh, you told us about it. Let folks know where they can find it, where they can follow you, the Sweaty Penguin, the other work and the writing you do. This piece that we've been talking about is in Real Clear Energy. We will link to it. We will also link to the Sweaty Penguin so you can subscribe and download that. But let folks know where they can find it until they see you again back on Hertel, my friend. Thanks for having me, Andrew. You can find The Sweaty Penguin on anywhere you get your podcasts, as well as thesweatypenguin.com and pbs.org slash Promise. You can find us on any social media. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin, where you can get merch, bonus content, and a lot more. You can also submit questions to Tip of the Iceberg. Like I said, we love answering people's questions, and so I hope to hear from you there. And if you want to find me personally, I'm on Twitter at Ethan Brown 5151. Yep, where he talks about all kinds of interesting things like trying to distinguish what's on his arm. Is it a bug or a piece of chocolate? And I'll let you find that on his Twitter feed for your own. Ethan Brown, uh, good stuff. Enjoy the conversation. We'll have you back because we're going to be talking about this, I think, probably for the rest of our lives, but at least for the foreseeable future. Good stuff, my friend. We'll talk again real soon. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Now let me see you go off like a
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Let's end today and the week on a good note. We haven't done one of these in a while because we've been busy doing best of shows and we've had pretty heavy stuff, but we always like to try to end on a good note because we have to talk about heavy topics. Let's go to Galveston, Texas. This story was so much fun a day or two ago. Now we got a little bit of an update on it. League City. Local sleuths have identified the owner of a purse dating back to the 1950s, found during the renovations to the League City School. They solved the mystery and got a surprise. The purse belonged to the mother-in-law of League City Councilman Justin Hicks. The purse, which a construction worker found during renovation of the League City Community Center, belonged to Beverly Williams, a former League City School student who died in 2016 from cancer. I really wish my mom could have seen this, Rhonda Doerr said as she delicately flipped through her mother's photographs from the purse. Um, Dora is one of Williams's nine children. I can tell you that this is the smallest purse she ever carried in her life, which would make sense as she was a high school student. It was hidden under the floorboards of the stage in the gymnasium of the school building. Uh, it was found during construction. Williams would have been 14 or 15 years old when it went under the floorboards. As much of a mystery has been solved, no one knows why or whether she had hit it herself or if it just got left there. I looked through some of the photographs and could tell how old some of the photographs were. It just looked so fragile. I just wanted it out of my hands. Armando Rodriguez, the construction worker who found it, said... Based on its contents, the purse probably had been there since about 1959 or more than 60 years. This purse is like a time capsule, Lewis said. Um, the school itself dates back to 1873 when students learned in a one-room cabin first known as the Clear Creek School. By 1912, the new two-story building, the then new two-story building, was built to house more students, but that building was demolished shortly after the second story of the school collapsed in 1938. They seem to always having to be rebuilding this thing, don't they? The League City School building was rebuilt and has been standing since 1938. That's where they found it. And the contents of the purse included a wallet with 16 photographs, a calendar the size of a photograph, three pencils, two handkerchiefs, and a cuticle nail file and a comb because, of course, it's a purse. Some things never change even since the 50s. The calendar was flipped to April, leading folks to think that's probably when it got left. There was no money. It was more of a picture book with contents inside in the wallet, like personal notes and a civil defense training card. Boy, how times have changed. Civil defense, of course, was mandatory for students in the 50s, was meant to prepare students for the event of natural disaster or nuclear war, you know, because those metal desks were the big deterrent against the bomb if the Russians ever sent it over. Uh, school students would participate in duck and cover drills and part of the civil defense training and then would get a card saying that they knew what to do. It was an amateur genealogist that initially reached out to me, Lewis said. She said she found the family of who the purse belonged to and that they had nine children. When I finally got one of the daughters on the phone, she immediately wept when asked me about her mother. That daughter was Deborah Hicks, the wife of City League Councilman Justin Hicks, who just months before voted in favor of the renovations at the League City School building that led to the foundation of the purse. Isn't it funny how things work out? It's amazing how this story has really come full circle. Lewis said this, It really makes you think about the way we store our personal belongings and stories nowadays. Everything's digital. Having discoveries like this in the future will be much less common. Also leads to a story that we're working on to put together about digital rot, how much we're losing of things like photographs and memories and notes and diaries because of the digital age. We're working on that for one of the long-form podcasts coming up. But what a great story. We'll link to it from the Galveston News. Cool way to bring it full circle. That'll do it for this edition of Herd Tell. Thank you so much for joining us. Our numbers continue to grow. We just looked at our uh, one-year numbers since last year to this year doing the radio show. It's amazing to see what we've done together. It's all y'all listening. So thank you very much. However you're watching or listening, make sure you're subscribing. It's always free. 
Monday through Friday, of course, the daily show formatted for radio. We have the long form podcast that we've started doing again on the weekends, twice on Sunday. That's an exclusive product for our big talker radio listening and the podcast folks. That's just an audio tour of all the good talks of the week. And of course, those good talks from the week are also available on whatever platform you're watching or listening right near. Make sure to check out all of that. We'd love to hear from you. We've done whole segments and shows based off your feedback, what you want to cover, what you had questions about. Hurtellshow at gmail.com. Hurtellshow on the Twitter. Of course, my social media and our guest social media are always on the lower third graphics of the YouTube. Make sure you're following them. Click all the links we send you. Support our guests. We appreciate them coming on. Let them know that they found you on Hurtell. So wherever you and yours are, across the street, around the world. We hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll talk to you again real, real soon on Hurtell. Take care. All the music on Hurtell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Somos la magia.